I-94 is presented by Pilsen Community Books. More information is at pilsencommunitybooks.org. I-94 on Lumpen Radio. And welcome once again to a new decade and a new set of shows from I-94, Lumpen Radio's Books and Literature Show. My name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. As always, I'm joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Happy 2020. And Mr. Michael Sack. Good morning, Jamie. How are you doing today? All right. Uh, round in the bend on... Uh the winter illness, as you yourself are, yeah? Yeah, it's unfortunate. You know, this is the time the Bridgeport Plague strikes all yeah, citizens you got of Bridgeport. I did, I did. It's terrible. <laughs> I've been out. But, you know, hey, we're back, and we've got a good uh, got a good 2020 set of shows coming up. We've got some good people coming up. Yeah, I'm Live guests today. It's been a long time. It has been a while. And you know, right now in the studio, we are joined by the author of Bingo, The Rise and Fall of Chicago's First Black Banker. It is out now from Northwestern University, Mr. Don Hainer. Don, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Don, uh, as Longtime residents of Chicago might know was the editor of the Chicago Sun Times for when, when did you leave the Sun Times? Uh, Twenty twelve. So there you go. You got out while the getting was good. Oh, <laughs> I'm still rooting for them. Yeah, we're still rooting for the Sun Times too. We love the Sun Times. They have new owners now, correct? Since you left? Yes. Yeah, they got yeah. bought by uh, a union, right? Basically, yeah, yeah. kind of a consortium of, of people, but including union. Right, right. Uh, and they still have a decent comics page, which I can't say about the distinguished competition. Uh, it's been tough to keep it, though. It's been know, tough. It's, yeah, yeah. Is that how financial? Is it? Yeah. 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 Also, you know, so many, so few people are going into drawing comic strips these days. You know, when Charlie Schultz died, it kind of, you know, all fell apart. You know, okay. so it's okay. too bad. But uh, aside from giving me the opportunity to say the word bingo multiple times, uh, as, yes. as we have. Bingo! Uh, it's, it's just so great. This, and this is a great story. It was somebody that, uh, frankly, Don, none of us... I, I don't think no, sitting no. in this room had, had ever heard of. Uh, Jesse Binga was a banker uh, pre-Depression and, uh, as you tell it in your story, was one of the leading figures uh, in Chicago's African-American and black culture. He was a, a fixture of the community who helped build up uh, State Street and, and really helped to solidify the new uh, black middle class that came into Chicago during the Great Migration. Right. He, he basically created the nucleus of what became known as the Black Belt, which was a, a, a section of the city that was kind of walled off by discrimination and, and confined to this small sliver of land running roughly, you know, at that time, Bingus time from 22nd Street to uh, 39th Street. So that, and that would have been in what present day Bronzeville. Right. Right. So I guess the obvious question. Hey, is Jamie, can I ask a quick question? Of course. What, uh, what were the uh, was it Wentworth to. Wentworth was one, you know, it was always, racially, there were always moving borders okay. in the city. And I, I grew up on the south side, and there were moving borders when I grew up. Gotcha. And and Wentworth was one of them. As a matter of fact, Langston Hughes uh, came to Chicago one time, and uh, kind of got turned around and said, oh, I think I'll walk over here. And he went past Wentworth and got beat up. Okay. So, I mean, that's, you know, that was like one of the racial borders at that time. I always think of, you know, our neighborhoods have kind of morphed over the years, and sometimes right. I tend to think of them as them being rigid, but they're really not. So thanks for clarifying. Yeah. And, of course, Bridgeport, you know, has its own tangled – where we're broadcasting the show from has its own tangled racial history. I believe the last uh, race riot really was in this neighborhood. Right. Well, it started on the lakefront and was all yeah. over the south side, including parts of Bridgeport. Yeah. Well, some of the guys from Bridgeport may or may not have kicked it off, too. There's the That's true. theory Absolutely. about Reagan's Colts, which was ended up uh, – which was – 
Daily Seniors Athletic Club, which was technically right, a gang. Right. And yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in fact, we've had some of those guys on other Lumpen Radio shows to talk about that. So you can check our archive if you want to learn about Senior Daily and uh, his street gang. You've had some of the Colts up? Yeah, we have. Oh, really? I'd yes. like to hear that. Yeah, yeah. With John Daly, no less. Oh, cool. Uh, one of the things, though, that I think the obvious question is, Don, why has nobody heard of this guy? You know, that's a good question. And, and some of it is some of black history has been lost because nobody was preserving it. You know, there, were, there was a great effort being done to preserve it within the black community, uh, particularly with Vivian Harsh, who uh, the Vivian Harsh collection is at 95th and Halsted, which was a good resource for me. The Woodson Excellent Library. Resource. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah the yeah. Woodson Library. Just right. But, uh, you know, that's, that was one of the reasons that kind of pushed me on this. Uh, the, the real reason that pushed me on it, to, to be frank, is I found him fascinating. Okay. And he's a tough guy. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was kind of uh, uh, the reason I was kind of uh, brought into seeing him as trying to flesh out who he was and his personality and how he operated. And you started this, uh, we were talking just before the show, you started this in the 90s. So right. you've been working on this over over 20 years, correct? Right, right. Yeah. And you started in the pre-internet era. Yeah. So tell us a little <laughs> bit about doing research on, on note cards and going to libraries, because you do credit the Chicago Library and a bunch of collections for this. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, it's it's difficult to, uh, it was it was difficult to research him in particular because there wasn't a lot of, there, you know, there, his paper, there's no papers. Uh, I found one letter in the Defender archives that Binga had written to a nephew, and uh, one letter that was written by a Binga to to them. And so it was it was very hard to find stuff. And I knew that when I started this, I had to start to find people who might have known him because they would soon be gone because Binga died in 1950. So I interviewed a couple grandchildren. I interviewed a, a guy who heard him speak at an Alpha Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity after he he'd been convicted. Were they surprised to hear from you? Uh, yeah, yeah, they were. But I mean, I don't think they were surprised in the sense that they they knew that Bingo was somebody, and everybody in the black belt knew Bingo was somebody. But and, and I think it's largely kind of a white disconnect too. I mean, there's a lot of people in the black community who have heard of Bingo and, and know about him. But I was shocked that there was never a, a full biography done on him. So that kind of pulled me in. And he. L- he was a real kind of rags-to-riches-to-rags story, right? He starts off as a porter around the time of the Columbian Exposition. Right. He, he founds his first bank. Uh, you're going to correct me on this, but I think it's 30, 36th and State. Am I correct? Yes. And then would open a block uh, later on during his heyday uh, around 47th. Wasn't well, quite rags-to-riches, though. Yeah. He, he, he was middle class. Well, he, he was raised middle, middle class. class. He certainly yeah. was raised with ambition. And, and, but by the time he came to Chicago, he didn't have a lot. That's right. He grew up in Detroit. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I was thinking, he, you know, he worked as a porter here. Right. And that's how we got to know yeah. the city. But his his kind of career arc is um, almost like the Horatio Alger myth in a lot of ways. And it, it is very close to that's the kind of – That's what I was thinking. Yeah, the self-made like the, man right, right. that we, we like to talk about. And we've, we've – you know, that's a big part of Chicago history. Many Chicago novels and stories kind of have this kind of – up from nothing or going back down to nothing. Yeah, August, right, right. August, March. Yeah. So well, was this something that appealed to you about him? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, there were so many different things that appealed to me about him. But, you know, one of the main things was he was, you know, I, I just can't imagine what it would be like for a black guy to wade through a crowd of white guys to rescue one of his own customers who had just moved into a white neighborhood. And Binga did that kind of stuff. And and he was just a tough, fearless kind of guy. And even though everybody was telling him, you, know, you, you can't be selling here, 
you know, you, even though blacks weren't allowed into the real estate commission or the real estate board at, at the time, uh, they tried to control Benga, and he wouldn't be controlled. Oh, there's that. There's a section in when you're talking about the World's Fair and uh, Benga just getting here, being a street peddler, seeking out his spot. Right. That would be so daunting. Yeah. And, uh, you and with 30,000 peddlers in uh -huh. Chicago, and he thinks he's going to be able to pull it off. But he went to a kind of a perfect spot. It was a brand-new railroad station at 12th and Michigan, which was the biggest world train shed in the world at the time. So, One of the things that I found very fascinating about your book and bank himself too it's just like the quintessential like chicago tough guy story you know there, we have a lot of those and you know you think of bankers nowadays and you don't think of them rushing into you know helping someone that's being discriminated against or anything like that and i we just can't the the midwest we just have this unique history i think with the it's just a little tougher than some of the other histories well, and you know that's kind of a chicago icon too yeah. is to be the tough guy and you know i think chicago's always had a little chip on its shoulder particularly being the second city and all that and new york's the tough guy and we're the little guy on the block and all that so the, you know and as the little guy always can pack a punch you know and yet you have a quote in your introduction that says, the city had a dicey drainage system where heavy rains could miss sewage with drinking water into a toxic stew. Cholera was common, and a year before Benga arrived, typhoid fever killed nearly some 2,000 Chicagoans. And you open that uh, paragraph with Chicago in the 1890s was not pretty, but it was mighty. And that's I think that's our history. It's not a pretty history. It's a very violent. Chicago has been corrupt and violent literally since it's, since its inception. Right. I mean, even that, that sewer story is an interesting one because that's what, and Bridgeport has some of that too. The city is a, one of the most raised cities yeah. in the country because they have to put in a sewer system to stop the cholera and, and the, those kind of problems of following the, the water in Lake Michigan. You're actually sitting in a building with vaulted, uh, next to a vaulted street here in Morgan. And uh, I own a two flat with a vault. And one of the great things, we've talked about this, I think, on the show before, maybe it was uh, with um, uh, Mary Wisniewski. Uh, these vaults were used by local Bridgeport residents as wine cellars for a long time. Uh, or you would walk underneath them when kids would get in them. They would, you know, do things that kids do, maybe, you know, a little something that just became <laughs> illegal, you know, back in uh, back in. Jamie January. was just yeah. making the puff puff sign. Yeah, you know, uh, not that I would do that. But, uh, you know, it's funny because at, at the end of my street, actually, over on Bonfield, there's a door and you can still walk into underneath Bonfield Street. And it goes in there. Really? Yeah. Is it locked? Yeah, you know, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Sometimes. I might have to check that out. Sometimes. One of the things, though, I want to get to with, with Jesse Binga, because, I mean, it's remarkable how quickly he became a central figure. You note that 2,000 residents had him as a landlord. You noted that at, at his peak, I think it was 120,000 people were banking with him. He was very central to the entire economy of a significant segment of Chicago. How did he... And he was working with, with whites to get right. property deals done, which was unusual. He was somebody that if he wasn't respected for the color of his skin, he was somebody that was respected for his business acumen. How, how, did, he, how did that arc happen? Well, there were, there were a couple of things in play. Uh, whites eventually did not want to deal with blacks and rental property. And so they asked Binga to get involved in that. Binga himself was also leasing a lot of property and then re-leasing it out at a, at a much higher price. Right. So, you know, Binga would just fit in naturally into this whole system. And one of, one of the stories that I found fascinating where in 1910, 
You know, and there's only probably thirty or 40,000 blacks living in the city at that time. Bingo. That wasn't a, that it said in your book. It was a minuscule population. Right. And when we look at Chicago, now I believe it's like 35%. It's a, it's a much larger number. So if you think in, in that context, he was really, I mean, the odds were stacked against right, him. Right, right. And then he rent, he, but he, he, he leased out a whole block for two hundred and a $250,000 lease, long-term lease, with a meatpacker from, you know, from over here, from, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, Bridgeport. Yeah, from Bridgeport, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. But, I mean, he he became basically, if you, if you look at it that way, he every black citizen in Chicago dealt with Jesse Binga at a certain point. Yeah, and he didn't he didn't give the most mortgages cuz I think a lot of insurance companies probably filled that and even some some uh, white banks. But he was the a symbol of the go-to guy and uh-huh. and you know you could count on him, he wouldn't back down. Yeah, his word you was know, his word good. was good. And that's why and I think part of the reason he is is now lost to time is because of the way his story ends. Well, it, yeah. Yeah. Well there's one scene I remember in there where he's it's before he, he had opened a bank, he was he was started making his money in real estate and he was leasing out buildings, but he still wasn't cash heavy. The cash right, he, right. that came in he had to use to lease out more buildings so he could have more uh tenants. And he was heavily leveraged as we would yes, say. Yes. You, you <laughs> describe him um which becomes obvious later in yes. his career. Buying yeah. an office for like, he buys a desk for a buck fifty and makes a five dollar down payment right. or something like that. And that that is where I saw his sort of his the bottom of his uphill climb. Right. Well, it's the grit, you know. I mean, and that's everybody says the grit is what you need and right. perseverance and persistence. That's what he had. And you know, there were a lot of naysayers telling him, you know, you're you're not going to make it. You're not going to do it right. Even with the building of the arcade building, which was uh, one of the, the skyscrapers, basically of of the black belt. Yeah. yeah, we're talking about population. I mean, but from the time he got there, I think it doubled every decade, right? The black just population. about yeah. So yeah. these people were coming up from the south. They didn't know anybody, but his was a name. That's who you went to, right? And you and you think at at the time that he came, I mean, uh, there was no de facto, you know, uh, black white neighborhoods then. You know, blacks were living in the same street, same block, same building, same floors as whites, and Italians were more segregated than blacks at that time. Right. I had a question about blockbusting, and you had a quote from a gentleman named Ripley Mead Senior that said, "Oh, it's his cousin." Oh, okay. Right. Uh, it started with Jesse Bing in about 1907. I was collecting rent. Of course, you can't say this now, but he was one of the original blockbusters, and then you said not exactly. And you went into – can you tell our listeners what blockbusting was and why? I, I, I know Benga did have some you know, exploitive practices, but right, it wasn't right. technically blockbusting. Can well, you t- I mean, you know, I, I don't know if you can call a, a black guy blockbusting just because right. he moves a black family onto a, a white block. You know, I mean, I, I think in any right-thinking way – in America, you should be able to live wherever ever you want, you, and you shouldn't be called, you know. Right. Some, but a blockbuster, in the traditional sense, was a panic peddler, and you know, like when I was growing up, uh, I remember a guy in, uh, in my neighborhood uh, got a, a letter to his house, basically saying, "Blacks are moving into your neighborhood; it's time to sell." You know, here's what you should do, and contact us, and it, it starts stirring up, uh, you know, uh, anxiety that you're you're going to lose the one thing that is the most valuable thing probably in your family and that's your home. Yeah. And what's the difference between blockbusting and redlining? You know, I, there really isn't a difference in impact, okay. but redlining was whole neighborhoods where, and this was a later practice, like in the, I think in the 60s, where uh, mortgage companies basically were saying you can't 
you know, these are bad neighborhoods to do business in. Okay. You know, you, yeah. you, you, you so might like not, if I wanted to buy a house, they would say, don't buy a house in this neighborhood. Well, they would basically say, I'm not sure we give you a mortgage. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, And okay. the consequence yeah. of blockbusting yeah. was a, a white family would panic. They would sell real low. Right. And the owner would come in and charge high rents okay. for the right. black families right. that were yeah. moving and, and Binga did benefit from that. Oh, yeah. But at the same Certainly. time, he also, I think the nuance here is he had an incentive to try to provide homes for African Americans moving up during the Great Migration as right. well. Right. And, and speaking of that, I want to play one of the recordings from your book. And, and because the anxiety over, over race and skin color, uh, as you note, was also prominent in the black community itself. You, you mentioned that right. uh, there were people who were uncomfortable about the darkness of their skin. And so we've got a reading from that. Our readings, as always, are courtesy of Shanna Van Volt. And today's music is by Junius Paul, who's got a new album out on international anthems. So he has graciously done that. So this is a reading once again from Bingo, The Rise and Fall of Chicago's First Black Banker by Don Hainer. And we're going to be back talking with Don in just a minute. Skin color was a part of the pecking order of black society. Light-skinned blacks in the early 20th century even tended to be viewed as the more educated, aristocratic crowd. Jesse Binga knew the distinctions as well as anyone. He hired two light-skinned black sisters from Ohio to work his real estate office in 1907, and they then later became a part of his bank staff. Jesse and Anna Cole could both pass for white. In fact, before joining Binga, Jesse Cole passed while working downtown as a typist for Dun & Bradstreet. Most of Binga's employees were college-educated and light-skinned. Some Binga critics said he preferred light-skinned employees, but Ripley Binga Mead Jr., the grandson of Binga's cousin and the son of Jesse Cole Mead, said Binga's bank employees were hired because of their education, not the shade of their skin. Black Belt newspapers advertised ointments that would bleach skin and tonics that would straighten hair. Why be dark and swarthy, asked a 1911 advertisement for face bleach sold for a dollar a bottle at Rankin and White Drugs at 36 and State Streets, down the block from the Binga Bank. For some African Americans, light skin, straight hair, and sharp features were an obsession. Robert Abbott, one of Binga's closest friends and a future investor, was himself dark-skinned and, according to his biographer Roy Otley, Abbott grew to hate the color black. He didn't wear black clothes and was rarely seen in public with a dark-skinned woman. Quote, yet he was fiercely loyal to any man who was black as distinct from those who were brown or fair of complexion, end quote. Abbott's feelings had a painful history. When he was in college at his beloved Hampton Institute, where Booker T. Washington was educated, Abbott was invited to the house of a light-skinned college classmate. The invitation was actually part of a cruel prank. When he arrived at the classmate's home, according to Otley, the door opened and the classmate said, Sit outside, because you're too black to come in here. Abbott was humiliated. Similarly, he once called a young woman and, as he waited at the door, he overheard the woman tell her mother that Abbott was too dark to date her. Binga's own life was marked by constant grinding questions on the gradations of skin color. As described in earlier chapters in the 1870 and 1880 census reports, he was listed as mulatto, yet in 1920 he was listed as black. The birth certificate of Binga's son, Bethune, listed his race as mulatto. Few, if any, people in the black belt encouraged passing, but most understood it. If, say, they ran into a friend working at a downtown department store, they would avoid openly recognizing their friend. To do so might cost the worker his or her job. When some black women working downtown passed under the mistaken belief they were Jewish, it required them to miss work on Jewish holidays. Some blacks who passed were absorbed into a white world and disappeared like a mist in the wind. 
And that was a reading from Bingo, The Rise and Fall of Chicago's First Black Banker by Don Hainer. Don is with us today in the studio. And that that passage, Don, really uh, struck me as illustrative and kind of anxious in a number of ways. The, the fact that the black community itself had anxiety over its own skin color, I, I think is something that um, maybe we on the other side don't really think about or explore. Right, I think that is a, is a surprise to a, a lot of people. And uh, you know, it, it's a, it kind of shows the, the problems that go with uh, what we came out of after slavery. I mean, it's just, it, 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 it all kind of relates back to, to that. And you know, the, the pecking order and who's the lowest on the lowest rung and who everybody wants to keep on the lowest rung because it, 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 it basically raises themselves. Yeah, it reminds me of the Jewish immigrants. A lot of the first generation immigrants not wanting their children to speak the right. speak Yiddish. Or right. They want them to be Americanized. Well, there was a an incident in the book too, and it, it, you might be able to refresh my memory on exactly what happened. But there was actually a lynching where the African American community was encouraging. Um, it was mentioned in here. Let me find it. That might have been the guy who robbed Binga, maybe. Because he, sure. he almost got lynched. Uh, I do remember one graphic scene starting out with with Ben Hecht. We did it. We did a show not too long ago on. Ben I, Hecht. I I listened to that show. Yeah, yeah, yeah with yeah, Adina yeah. Hoff. Right, right. And uh, I I did not know that story though of of a man having it, broken out of the plate glass of of Binga's bank. Right, and I could find nothing. In a, you know, in, in that era of journalism, you never know what was going that on. That was like out of horror fiction. Yeah. That was a scene yeah. for you, Jeremy. That, I mean, the guy got his – he was decapitated. Yeah, right. right. But, we, of course, we don't know Ben. You know, one of the things that you know, Hoffman's right, book right, noted right. about Ben is he made a lot of this stuff <laughs> up. Right, when right. Started Although out. she did say in, in your interview that he was very angry that people said he was creating – false stories. Right. You know? Yeah. And some of that story is ring true, but I kind of think he might have conflated that yeah. into this story where a Bingo was, a guy came into Bingo's bank, grabbed him by his throat, and ended up taking a couple thousand dollars and then took off, and then everybody in the neighborhood kind of went after him. I think him. that's the guy. Yeah, yeah. that's the story. Right. Yeah, they yeah. wanted him lynched. Yeah. 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 Talk a little bit about, you know, we're, we do have a reading coming up about the stroll, but I think this is a good time to kind of get into this because the this, this story that you mentioned is, is in that chapter where you start to discuss this. You know, that area became um, a mecca for black Americans. Right. And Bingo was right at the center of it. Can you talk a little bit about the milieu of that time? Um, because it, it doesn't exist anymore. You know, there's, there's no place like that in Chicago. Well, you know, there's been an argument that uh, the black belt was booming because of the discrimination forcing it to have every class forced together. But it, the, the problems that, that go with that, you know, and Bingo was, was part of that, was, uh, you know, Bingo, wealthy guy, and in one, a block away is a, a, a one process, you know, a brothel, mm -hmm. and, and the, a block in the other direction is, is another brothel. But uh, what, what Bingo was trying to do was, was uh, I think, consolidate black power in the black belt. Because if, if we're going to be confined, let's at least buy black you know, have double duty dollars where you could uh, both be patronizing a black uh, area and at the same time benefiting the community. That and, was also a big cultural hub of the African American community. Right. Well, as as one uh, uh, jazz player said, uh, at night you could hold up a horn on, on uh, you know, trumpet on State Street and start playing itself. There was oh, so much right. music going on. 
and you know, and inventive music and ragtime and jazz, and you know, it was a, a mecca for uh, all that kind of entertainment in in that era. And that, that's actually kind of following what Jeremy asked. I, I wanted to s- kind of get your opinion or I guess some history on this because with black power consolidated in such a small area, did it really have any kind of political influence? Because there's a number of stories in your book where, uh, using words we're not going to repeat, people continually kind of crap all over Binga and, and, and all this stuff, especially at the end of his uh, tenure as you know, the first black banker. He, right. he literally has the rug pulled out from under him because of the color of his skin. Did that actually give them any kind of political clout in Chicago in that period? You know, it did. And Binga, it kind of showed in Binga's trial some of the people who testified for him. I mean, one guy was Thomas Nash. He was a big-time Southside politician and uh, former alderman and, and committeeman, I believe, too. And uh, also, he might have even been the treasurer, if I recall, of Cook County. But so Binga's world of money made those connections. But because he was Catholic, he also kind of got in with some Catholic, Irish Catholic politicians, which was, of course, huge in Chicago. And that was a good connection for him. But until until the black belt really became large, uh, the voting power wasn't that substantial, you know, like in the early stages of, of Binga's uh, rise in, in his career. But, you know, by the 30s, it was it, it, there was enough numbers that you could get the votes. You mentioned his Catholicism too. That's a that was pretty rare for African Americans back in. The- it was, but I mean, you know, and, and I think a lot of uh, a lot of black guys would say, well, it wasn't that rare. I mean, I remember the Catholic school being a place everybody wanted to go and all that kind of stuff. But it was like four percent of the population okay. of the black population was Catholic. Was it was it driven in some sense by schooling too? I think so. I think so, and I think a lot of uh, an entree for a lot of blacks into the Catholic Church was through the school. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they'd get in the school, and then at the school, they'd be kind of pushing, right. you should become a Catholic. And I think the priest I mentioned in there who was uh, Binga's good friend was so. called the Great Evangelizer, and right. he was said to have converted, you know, I think it was three three to 4,000 uh, blacks to Catholicism. And, of course, Binga was very devout. Yes. You know, he and he was very involved in the church. You know, he, he uh, I think we're foreshadowing a little bit, but Binga ends up in jail in Joliet, and when he gets out, the, the church and his uh, service to the church is really what sustains him through the last period of his life. Right. And it didn't seem artificial at all. No, I, you know, they, they sincerely loved Binga. And, you know, and the devout part, you know, and I, I do believe he was devout, but there was a lot of suspicion that he wasn't devout as much as he was manipulative of using the Catholic Church to his advantage. I don't think that was the case. I think he had a real faith. I mean, from everything I saw and, and what he did and his acts. Uh, he just seemed like a really comp. Very, human being. very, and, and one. Of, I'm hoping that there's there's more literature that comes out based from from your book. Um, you know, there are, there are a lot of interesting contradictions. He's he was really quiet and reserved in his personal life, but he could be uh, boisterous and articulate. Well, and for he, public. he wasn't a big drinker. Uh, he, uh, he rarely smoked. Maybe a, a Cuban cigar once in a while. So I mean, he was. But he had friends and partners. And friends, I use that more as business friends, mm-hmm. who were saloon keepers, gamblers, you know, uh, people who would probably not be seen at his church. Where, where the, was there ever a time when his name was um, used for any kind of memorials or street names or anything like that? No. Never? No, no. not that I know of. Wasn't no. his association with, like, the gamblers and the saloon keepers, I mean, just because of the proximity of where they were, as you were saying earlier, the geographical— racism 
kept them in a certain area. So you had you know right. brothels down the street from the right. bank. Was that a lot of a lot of the vice was closed down in the city or attempted to be closed down by a, a big movement in like the 1914, but it all ended up hard by the black belt. You know because. Gotcha. It, the political power there at that time yeah. wasn't going to get rid of it. I know, like over Canal Street by Chinatown, uh, that was like a big vice area right, after right. this. Yeah. Yeah. Mushmouth Johnson, who was Binga's brother-in-law, although he had died before Binga, he became the brother-in-law, Mushmouth Johnson has business, had a lot of that business in Chinatown. Oh, do you yeah. want to talk a little bit about Mushmouth? Because that was another uh, great part to, of, his, of Binga's story. Yeah, he was quite a character, and he was uh, – you know, the, the way I bring him into all this was uh, the impact of his death on Binga's life because uh, when he died, he left a, a very large estate and his wife, or I mean his sister, inherited that and his sister ended up marrying Jesse Binga. And, you know, and Mushmouth was another rags-to-riches story but in the, in the sporting life world, <laughs> as they would say. You know, and he came up from St. Louis and uh, worked as a porter in uh, various, you know, gambling establishments, and I think including the Palmer House, and eventually became a, a head of a, a gambling operation. Great. We're talking with Don Hainer. He's the author of Binger, The Rise and Fall of Chicago's First Black Banker. It's out now from Northwestern. Don, you're not going anywhere, right? we got another half hour. Stay in here? Sure. Yep. Good. So, hey, we're going to go and thank some of the folks that make this station possible. And then we're going to play another segment, another reading right out from the break from uh, Don's book. And then we'll be right back live. You are listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM. This is Lumpin' Radio. It's I-94. If you enjoy listening to I-94 and other programs like this on Lumpin' Radio, please consider becoming a member today. More information is at lumpinradio.com. And now, back to I-94 on Lumpin' Radio. Despite the gambling and prostitutes, the dangers, the poverty, and housing woes of the Black Belt, Jesse Binga was one of a growing class of people who were bringing business to State Street, the main commercial strip of the Black Belt. Binga was the future. Binga represented success. And in that respect, he was similar to the most celebrated man on State Street, heavyweight champion boxer Jack Johnson, who had a restaurant and nightclub five blocks from Binga's bank. Both Binga and Johnson were fearless. Johnson was also enormously popular in the Black Belt as the man who defeated white champion James L. Jeffries in the fight of the century in 1910. Johnson acted as an unfettered free man. He drove expensive cars, married a white woman, and in 1912 opened his Black and Tan Café de Champion right off State Street at 41 West 31st Street, where black and white patrons mixed freely as couples. Both Binga and Johnson attracted white anger, but in different ways. Johnson for defying racial norms with his lifestyle and by vanquishing white boxers. Binga for defying racial norms with his assault on real estate boundaries set by whites seeking to isolate and contain the black belt. Both were what came to be called new Negroes. They were self-confident men who stood up for their rights and set their own course. However, while many in the black belt knew they couldn't become a champion fighter like Johnson, they saw that it was possible to become an entrepreneur like Binga, or at least own their own home as Binga said they should. Binga was the king of State Street, at least during the day. His State Street control extended south of 35th Street, with pockets of frontage all the way to the Binga block, which ran from 47th to 48th Streets along State. At night, however, music ruled. Two worlds occupied State Street in the Black Belt, business by day, pleasure by night. 
During the day, State Street was filled with shoppers buying shirts, boots, dresses, chairs, beds, and rugs. All along the stroll, one could find funeral homes, bakeries, barber shops, and beauty parlors. You could get your nails manicured, your shoes shined, and a suit tailored to order and available the next day. Fine clothes were one of the reasons to take a walk down the stroll. It was a place to meet, to be seen, and to do business. At night, crowds jammed into its cafes, nightclubs, and theaters. If the Black Belt were a country, the stroll was its capital. While whites owned some of the shops on the stroll, many were owned by blacks. Encouraged by stories in Robert Abbott's Chicago Defender, tens of thousands of Southern blacks migrated north to Chicago to seek jobs and a better way of life away from the confines of Jim Crow. And that meant more opportunities for black entrepreneurs. When Bingo was married in 1912, there were 526 black-owned businesses in Chicago. By 1921, that number had more than doubled to 1,260. Bingo owned only a couple of those businesses, but his bank and real estate operation were two of the most significant along the strip. In fact, Bingo, particularly with his control of the Bingo block, was shaping the black belt as he pushed its borders farther south. Around the Bingo Bank, State Street was a 24-hour world. Some work shifts ended at 11 p.m., midnight, or later, sending workers into State Street's round-the-clock action. Many businesses stayed open during the night to cash in on the after-work crowd of porters, swing shift factory workers, waitresses, waiters, busboys, and bellhops. These customers found more than shopping. They found inspiring entertainment and lively dancing on and around the State Street Strip. There was also plenty of gambling and prostitution. It was the Mecca of Pleasure, as the Chicago Defender called it. When the sun set, State Street became so crowded and energetic that the poet Langston Hughes once said it was a place where midnight was like day. As the saying went on State Street, you could get anything you wanted, from foot race to a murder. Ladies and gel- gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, we are back on I-94. Once again, my name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. I'm joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Hello. Mr. Michael Sack. Hello. And you just heard an excerpt from Don Hainer's Bingo, The Rise and Fall of Chicago's First Black Banker. And if you missed the first half hour of the show, shame on you. But we talked about <laughs> uh, Jesse Bingo's rise. And I think during this half, we're probably going to talk about uh, Jesse's fall. And the last kind of excerpt you heard was kind of the peak of peak bingo, if I may. Right. Uh, it's when right. he uh, ruled uh, the bingo block. He had his own block of houses. He had his fingers in almost every major uh, development that was going on in black Chicago. Uh, but trouble was on the horizon in a couple of ways, uh, the Great Depression being one of them. Talk a little bit about what bingo's life was like at its, you know, kind of zenith. Well, you know, I believe he was a millionaire. I, I, I think that can be pretty easily put together with all the numbers that he had. And he was often always called a millionaire. And he was front page news on the Chicago Tribune, which was not always friendly to blacks. Right. And, you know, that that's kind of the split personality of the city. You know, you want everybody to appreciate the rags to riches story. But if, if, you're, uh, if you're black, there's a little different spin on it. And right. I think that happened with, with Binga. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think Jesse Binga... At his peak, he had probably uh, dozens of properties, you know, two flats, three flats, multiple unit buildings. He also had the bank. He had the arcade building. He was trying to do uh, another bank uh, farther south on 47th Street, which was considered going to be the new strip to be on in in the Black Belt. And uh, But uh, the, the Depression came in, and that stopped all that. And even that new bank, I, I'm— 
relatively sure it was to try to clean up his paper from his old bank, move it to the new bank, so uh, because he saw trouble coming for, for his bank. Well, let's talk a little bit about that uh, because bank failures uh, – you know, the Great Depression obviously hits uh, in, in with the stock market crash in 1929, uh, and it's kind of a slow-motion disaster. But it does hit uh, the African-American community first, and, and Jesse's bank, uh, which supposedly – remember, the FDIC did not exist at this point. De- deposits were not guaranteed by the federal government. That would come in after the Great Depression. But there was something called the Charter House, and he was supposed to have some sort of protection against uh, runs in the bank and, and bad deposits. When the Depression hit, it became apparent in your telling um, that while Binga um, did seem to make a lot of good faith efforts to cover his depositors uh, and doesn't seem to have, in in the words of the Cook County prosecutors, enriched himself off these people, he nonetheless did a lot of uh, things that were not in good banking practice. Right. And this got him into trouble. And And before you kind of go into what that is, uh, unsaid in your book, and so I, I kind of wanted to ask you about it, was the fact that Jesse was a prominent black citizen in Chicago the reason that some people wanted to see him brought low? You know, I think race always has a role in Chicago, particularly at that time, in, in what's being done. And he, even though he was one of the first bankers to be prosecuted. There was a banker a, a month or so before him, a white banker, who had committed fraud, uh, actually, and, and along with his brother, I guess, and uh, who was convicted and also sentenced to one to ten years. So Binga's trial, while uh, could have been politically started, it, the, the facts were basically there. I mean, it went all the way to the Supreme Court, and he had been convicted of embezzlement. But that embezzlement, I do think— was largely there to try to protect his bank. And I think a, a guy who's a, a self-made man starts to confuse his business, even though it was publicly sold at that time, with his own, as, as, as though it, it, he owned it completely, and he didn't. And so I think a little of that kind of happened. But as you point out, uh, and a Chicago banker, white banker, said if the clearinghouse had actually done its job Bank, Binga's bank might not have fallen, and then a lot of other banks wouldn't have fallen either because it was a domino effect. You said in the, the book as well, o- over two years, between June 29, 1929 and 1931, 144 of Chicago's 193 state banks failed, were suspended or went into voluntary liquidation, and then 1,314 state, state banks in Illinois were shut. Illinois, Illinois were shuttered. That's how they say it down by my sister's house. Down by you, sir. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're from Illinois. You got a no. two tree there. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, this was a a mo- and I'm not suggesting that race did not have an issue, but this was like a monumental Without failure, a doubt. Without you know, a doubt. larger than anything. Yeah. Oh yeah. The one thing, though, and I said Charterhouse, I meant Clearinghouse. Thank you, Don. The the one thing, though, that was a little interesting about Binga particularly was he was the first one to go. And as you mentioned, there was a domino effect because his was a, a kind of the um, – what's the word I'm looking for? The, the anchor stone, the foundation block for so many other African-American banks at that point in time. Why did the Clearinghouse – they they didn't even step in. They just said, you're, you're screwed, buddy. Yeah, and I, – I, as I point out a little bit in the book, when Bingo was trying to get help, uh, some white bankers turned their backs on him and, and used epithets to describe his bank. Right. Uh, one guy who did come up for him or at least gave him some money, I think it was 
200,000 was Sam Insull, who was uh, the, uh, basically the founder of Commonwealth Edison. And he also went down in the Depression, too. And he didn't, he didn't get convicted. He, and, and I think a lot of suspicion in the black belt was that Binga was convicted, was even sought, you know, the charges were even sought because he was black. I, I think that's a little more mixed, a little more complicated than that. But I mean, for a 70-year-old banker to get uh, one to 10 years, that's a lot of time. And in Stateville, yeah, I mean, Stateville is, 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 was then and is now still one of the toughest prisons in America. And at the time, one out of six uh, inmates were murderers. I, I did want to mention, too, that a lot of this book is very complicated. The, the issues are nuanced. There's not really a solid answer. And I think we have lost a lot of sight of that in our current because everything seems to be very black and white. Right, there's right. no there's no nuance anymore. And you mention a lot of things in the book, but it this this story is extraordinarily complicated from the racial aspect. And I, I just wanted to well, even speaking of uh, just those little nuances and complications, would you say that 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 lack of oversight and regulation that was to be part of his downfall was also part of the reason that. He could get started in the banking industry to begin exactly, with. Exactly, because when he got started, there was no regulation. There were private, yeah. the private banks. You there could, were like anybody, mom and pop banks. Right, anybody could throw up a sign and, and have a private bank, and many did in Illinois. And I think that's where maybe some bad habits could be started. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, we had a bank in our neighborhood. It was a mom and pop bank started in that area. Uh, Washington Federal go under. I was a customer, actually, of theirs, so uh, we did not lose any money. But no, it, yeah. that, was, that was a bank that actually dated back to that period as well. It had been a Polish thrift and uh, had started in exactly that way. And, you know, and bear in mind, I mean, I, there were a lot of people angry that they lost their money, obviously, in the sure. black belt. But they also knew Bingo was the guy. And, you know, and he had always kind of stood up in a way that very few other black leaders stood up, not just politically, but economically. For the, for the neighborhood, you know, I don't I don't know if you want to get into it uh, on the air, Don, but the way you wrote um, his criminal charges coming into play was it was almost kind of set up like a thriller. It was it was cool. I like oh, the way thanks. you write it. The two blank pieces of paper. Do you want to talk about that at all, or would you want to save that for readers to get? You know, I, go for it. You know, I, I did want to say one thing before we continue. Is this book is very readable. Because when Jamie first told me the title, it was about a bank, I was like, oh, okay. And then I read it, and then Jamie's like, I read it, it's great, and it is a great read. Well, and it's the- You know, I was giving a talk uh, the other day, and I said, you know, I, you, you might not think that a, a banker's life would be too interesting. And two guys in the crowd said, hey, we're bankers. <laughs> we have an interesting life. Yeah. <laughs> you know? so, so, okay, sorry. Yeah, sure, buddy. I'll try it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it, before before we get into that, because I, I do want to talk about that aspect, you know, the, when I was reading it, it struck me – I. I I never flipped over and realized that you were the editor of the Sun-Times. And I, I, when I got about three or four chapters into it, I realized the guy must have some news background training. It read like uh, – There was always a thread to pull, you know? Yeah, well, it read like, it read like somebody who had journalism training who, you know, knew how to put together a feature story. That's what it read like. Well, the fun part of doing this was the research. Yeah. And, and, and as it often the case in doing a story. But the writing became – I was surprised too. It became very enjoyable for me because it was trying to piece together all these or put together right. all these threads that I'd been pulling for years to figure out who Jesse Bingo was. 
Right. And of course, as we mentioned at the start, you know, when you started, you didn't have the Internet. We, we talked a little off air that you right. were using the Sun-Times as morgue. Were there morgues available to you for um, the Defender and things like that? At the time, when I first started it, the Defender wouldn't let me look. And, oh, uh, and, pleasant. And, and, well, it might have been because they, they didn't have it all real squared away either. There was a lot of upheaval. Uh, but I, I thought it would have been nice to at least right. take a look. Now those archives are online, and they're still hard to find Jesse Binga stuff on, in those archives. You can find them through newspapers.com and other you know news sites. That, the Chicago that, that, Public that Library has the Defender database. And the Chicago yeah. Public Library is a great search uh, vehicle that I used often. Uh, I, I can't remember what the exact uh, – I, I, I had the membership, and I, have, I don't have the uh, – website in my head right now but uh, it was, it's great to use jstor yeah you know, no not jstor but it was all you can find all your newspapers okay and, yeah we do it and we there's have a, a list we have a historical newspaper archive right. for right. sometimes the Tribune, and then there's another one that has black newspapers yeah, yeah don right. was talking right. about going through microfilm while we were off air and that sounded like a nightmare oh, yeah well it was we particularly you know like i said this was before the internet and and you know i'm slowly trying to go year by year and being a fortunately did get a lot of play in, in the black press, and he got a little play in, in the white press, and so yeah. And of course, you even mentioned some newspapers or magazines I'd never heard of, like the Broadaxe. I had never, oh, heard, yeah, of never heard of that. Either. Never heard of it. So thank you. But getting back to, to Mike's question, uh, before we run out of time here, talk, talk a little bit about uh, Jesse's trial and how that came about. <sighs> yeah, he. Well, as 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 I mentioned, you know, he, his was the first bank to go down in the depression, and uh, as more banks fell, there was a more pressure on political pressure on prosecutors to say, hey, do something about this. So they started going after bankers. And Jesse Bingo, like I said, was one of the first. And what he had done was he had, according to all the testimony, and I try to lay it out so the reader can decide, uh, but, you know, the Supreme Court also decided in this case too. Right. But uh, he had had people sign blank pieces of paper or blank forms that ultimately were mortgages that he could use to show that they were assets to the bank so he could balance his sheet. Just like what happened down the street here, by the way, right, if right. you follow that story. Yeah. Oh, I didn't. Oh, yeah, that bank over on uh, yeah, they wrote fake Lock? No, not Lock. Uh, Bonfield. Yeah, yeah. Right at the end of Bonfield, my, my street. He killed himself, correct? He did. He yeah, killed yeah. himself under suspicious circumstances at somebody else's house. It's yes. been a, a Sun-Times story all the way, too. That's right. It has been. Yeah. And so credit to the Sun-Times. And Cranes has been on it, but I think the Sun-Times, no. you guys scooped Sun-Times broke it, I think. Yes, you did. Yeah, oh, yeah. Don, I just want to mention, too, you are on a blog post on the Chicago Public Library for new books by Chicago writers. So. I saw that, and I I appreciate it. Yeah, so if anybody's, if you are looking for it, we do have a nice little piece about Don up on the website. You can order his book or. That's on chipublive.org, right? Correct. Yeah, so there you Thank go. Thank you. Uh, but, but, you know, again, before we, because we are running out of time, it's incredible. The show's just flown by here. It's amazing. Um, when Jesse gets sent up, and this is kind of the, the sad part of it, because as you mentioned, he goes to Stateville, tough prison in Joliet, uh, not a place to send a 71-year-old man. This is. That's. Kind- Bananas. Yeah, a I mean, banker gets sent to yeah, Statesville I mean, back yeah. then. You know, I, I would I would say I don't think necessarily his prosecution as a banker by the prosecutor necessarily has to have racial overtones because you mentioned you know a lot of banks fell, a lot of people got right, right. suckered during the Great Depression. But why was he sent to one of the most violent places uh, in in the North American states? Yeah, I'm not sure that 
the minimum security. Actually, I should know that, but I'm not sure whether minimum security was available then. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't like know the, if they had white collar prisons back then. Yeah, I don't. I don't think that was the case back then. But uh, you know, it, it still also seemed like a long sentence for yeah. for what was involved here. Well, a couple of Goyevich, you know, <laughs> free yeah. ride. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do that. Uh, he gets out though, and ultimately he's pardoned though. Now that, that's kind of the weird denouement to this story. Yeah, but here's the thing. You know, the the pardon was reported in the Tribune, and it might have been reported in also in the Defender. I'm, I can't remember okay. exactly, but I could find no record of it in the state archives. And I looked at the pardon records of the state archives year by year, okay, and found nothing to to verify that. I mean, it could have happened. I, I and you know, state records aren't always. Perfect, but right. that was what I found. Well, when we end with Jesse, he's, he's no longer in prison. Right. Right. He's out. He's with the, the diocese. He's working for a Catholic church, and, and he died. But the pardons allegedly came after he got out of prison. Okay. Oh. Right, in 1941. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And but but we don't know if that actually happened. Right. Now, Jesse, he, he dies. I think he had a heart problem, dies right. at 86. Uh, and that's it. His, his name's not even on his gravestone. No. And, and Jesse, as I think all of us kind of mentioned— then just vanishes into the mist of history. Right. How many other people like Jesse Binga do you think there are? Uh, there's got to be plenty because, you know, I, I would keep running across names. And I, I always thought I was a pretty good reporter and yeah. pr- knew Chicago pretty well. I always remember finding names that surprised me. And some of that is because of the white-black part right. of Chicago. The, a lot of the black history was lost and not preserved. And now at the Woodson Library or through the Vivian Harsh collection, there's a lot more archives that are coming in of family collections and family papers. And I even got an old passbook from, uh, or a copy of an old passbook from the Binga Bank through the archives there. I was going to ask that since the book has been published, have you received information from family members or anybody else? No, you know, I mean, I talked to as many family members as I could find, you know, d- during the course of the book. But uh, I, I have I, what I really love to find is also the little booklet, the certain sayings of Jesse Bingo. Oh yeah, which I couldn't find. I've gone online and you know tried all that. He used to refer to himself in the third person, which I thought. Yeah. Was well, his name he, that was his brand. He, yeah. And one 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 guy from the Defender said, "I've never seen a guy who loves to hear the sound of his own name as much as Jesse Bingo." Well, you've given us the opportunity to say Bingo a hundred times, yes. Don, and we thank you for this. Don, we're going to close with one final reading from your book, because as always, we like to give the author the last word. We want to thank Shannon Van Volt. We want to thank Junius Paul. We want to thank International Anthem Recording Archive. We want to thank you, the listeners, for tuning in today. We've been speaking with Don Hainer. He is the author of Bingo, The Rise and Fall of Chicago's First Black Banker. It's out Thanks, now Don. on Northwestern. Thank you. Don, do you have a website people can get more information about this stuff? Uh, I would just go to Northwestern University Press. Okay, for that, that. that's and, northwesternpress.edu, uh, yeah. I believe. Don't forget about the dial show thursday yes i was just going to mention that you can catch i-94 live we're back in action i will be there i will not be in bed puking with <laughs> amanda goldblatt she is there for a hard mouth that is out from counterpoint that is thursday at seven o'clock at the dial bookstore on the 16th and that is followed by our next show here in the studio with los angeles author steph cha that yeah. will be next sunday the 19th it's gonna so be a good week it's going to be a good week for i-94 hey with that i'm going to play another reading don thanks so much for being here thank, thank you, you for having me all you guys thanks thank you guys we'll see you hopefully on Thursday, and if not, next Sunday on I-94. On November 12, 1919, an automobile rolled in front of Jesse Binga's real estate office at 4724 State Street, and a bomb was tossed out the window. Its explosion blew out windows, splintered wood, and sent contracts and title documents flying. By the time the police arrived, the car was gone. Binga's home was next. On December 3rd, 
A passerby near Binga's house heard a plop and saw smoke rising from under the front porch. Firefighters were called and a bomb was found sizzling harmlessly beneath the front steps. It didn't explode, it just charred the steps. Jesse and Eudora Binga were rattled, but it didn't stop them from celebrating their favorite holiday a couple weeks later. They might not have realized it at the time, but their Christmas party celebration of 1919 would become their signature annual holiday tradition called the Christmas Twilight Party. It would also be the hottest party ticket in the Black Belt. The first Binga Christmas Twilight Party was held at the spacious Black-owned New Vincennes Hotel at 36th Street and Vincennes Avenue. The music, provided by Elgar's orchestra, which was hidden behind palms and ferns in the hotel's palatial ballroom, had a calming effect on the nerves of the guests and the bingas, now in their 50s. The orchestra made, quote, The music flowed out in the dreamy, soulful way that causes even the old to forget their age and the youthful to become more gay, if possible, end quote, according to a broad-axe newspaper story on the party. The bingas rented the hotel reception rooms, parlors, and dining room and filled them with holiday flowers and wreaths of holly fashioned in the letter B. Party favors were standard at the Christmas Twilight Party, where women would be given gifts of headbands trimmed in silver glittering bracelets with tiny silver bells. Men sometimes were given a bow of white chrysanthemums or a black cane decorated with silver trim and tied in red ribbon. Everyone was in formal attire, with Eudora elegantly gowned in black iridescent over satin with diamond ornaments. The first Christmas Twilight Party was in honor of Mr. and Mrs. James Cole, who were visiting the Bingas from Detroit, where Jesse was born. Both couples were in the receiving line. It was Eudora's beloved little sister, Celia Johnson Mosey, now a widow of several years. And no party could be a party of Chicago's black elite without the popular master of ceremonies, Julius Avendorf, journalist and bon vivant. Chicago Defender editor Robert Abbott was there with his wife, as were cosmetics manufacturer Anthony Overton and funeral director Charles Jackson, who in a few weeks would become vice president of Binga's Bank. The crowd was the who's who of the black belt elite. The quote, younger set enjoyed the pretty new dances and their graceful way of doing them was a pleasure to onlookers, the broad acts reported. Dinner was served in the hotel's pretty little tea room. The Brodack story made no mention of the bombings, but referenced the struggles of life and perhaps hinted at what the Bingas faced when it was stated, quote, It was truly a lovely gathering in one of the most beautiful spots that could have been selected in this city. Too much cannot be said of this pretty Xmas party, and Mr. and Mrs. Binga will long live in the hearts of their friends, for it is large-hearted, broad-minded people that hold the old world of ours on a level and keep us feeling that it is not such a bad place to be after all, end quote. The last song played at the Binga's Christmas party was Home Sweet Home. Two days later, Binga's house was bombed again. On the night of December 27th, the bomb was thrown onto the front steps of the Binga's house. This one didn't just sizzle, it exploded, shaking the windows and damaging the large white wraparound front porch. An eyewitness, Arthur Curtis, a Chicago Tribune linotype operator, said he was positive the bomb thrower was a white man. Curtis said he was driving by the Binga residence in his twin six when he saw an auto dash up the curb. A young man wearing a soft hat pulled down over his face, jumped out, ran to the porch, tossed a package on it, and scooted by to the car. The driver of the car, also white, kept the engine running and stepped on the gas when the bomb thrower jumped back in the car. Curtis was unable to get a good look at the car, and there were no taillights to illuminate the license plate number. It wasn't just the color of Binga's skin that drew attention of the bombers, it was Binga himself. He had become a symbol of racial change, the general leading the black invasion. For months, Jesse and Eudora had been receiving threats, some by phone, others by mail. The message was clear and blunt, get out. 
Jesse Binga had become the most hated man in Chicago, at least in white Chicago. Lumpin' Radio's Books and Literature program, airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Donald Hamer, author of Binga, The Rise and Fall of Chicago's First Black Banker, out now from Northwestern. This episode originally aired on January 12, 2020. I-94 is a Lumpin' Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Bolt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpenradio.com.